Welcome to the Safety Talks podcast. Safety Talks seeks to educate and inform through our conversations with stakeholders, experts, and influencers in all aspects of occupational health and safety. We cover current practices and new developments in emerging technologies, management systems, legislation, and better practices. I'm your host, Patrick Robinson, and I'm proud to contribute to the Safety with Purpose podcast network hosted by Safeopedia, where our mission is to lead, educate, and inspire. Today I'm chatting with Dave Rebbit. Dave is the president and owner of Rarebit Consulting, a safety consulting firm. Through his career arc, Dave has worked in senior roles in the energy, transportation, mining, and construction industries, and also with the Canadian Department of National Defense. An author, commentator, and educator, Dave earned a Master's of Business Administration from Athabasca University and is a long-term instructor of the University of Alberta's Occupational Health and Safety Certificate Program. Dave further supports the health and safety profession as a member of the board of the Canadian Registered Safety Professionals. Here today to talk about hyper-compliance, we bring you Dave Revit. Dave, welcome. Oh, thanks. It's uh, it's good to be here and talk about this uh, uh, this subject that's obviously uh, near and dear to my heart. Before we dive into the details here, we're speaking today at the end of January in 2019. Um, you're speaking in Red Deer and uh, a variety of other places, and you spoke um, about this topic in 2018 as well. Can you characterize how those uh, sessions went and um, overall what listener feedback has been like? Well, I think uh, the sessions went uh, really well. I guess, uh, you know, when I speak at a, a conference or to a group, I, I always try and challenge them to think critically about, you know, what we're discussing. Hypercompliance is one of those things that seems to make sense on the surface, but the more you analyze it, the more it seems like it's uh, something that really is, is not going to accomplish the goals that you're looking for. Most of the feedback I get on this is that it's a, a very interesting topic and, and certainly an interesting concept. And, and uh, most people comment on the, on, on the new perspective and, and say things like it really opened my eyes and made me realize this probably isn't a path that any company would want to go down. But also they understand how did we get to this point? where uh, we have hypercompliance that is basically destroying the very thing that it's trying to create. Right. That's a great uh, starting point for us to jump into background. So I think you're right. It serves well to talk about the history of some of this OHS thinking, and some of the earlier influencers and, and the foundational beliefs. So there's a variety of uh, writers and uh, academics that provided groundwork for this. So Taylor, Weber, Maslow, and so on. The story of safety in the 20th century is really the story of, of motivation in the workplace. And when we f- first started seeing, you know, large manufacturing facilities and, and the post-industrial revolution where people no longer work at the, on the family farm, now they're working for an employer, they're working at a facility, they have specific work hours. And as this kind of grew into its own companies obviously were looking for ways to make their their plants and and their business more efficient and more profitable and in around the turn of the 20th century we have uh, frederick winslow taylor a taylorism and and he is uh, quite a big figure uh in in early industrialized society because 
he really started the uh, the whole project management movement. He was quite a pioneer. But at the time, I, supervisors in facilities were called overseers, and uh, the the owner of the plant or the manufacturing facility or the business, you know, had employees coming in, but they were seen as you know a means to an end, and and um, right. I mean they weren't seen as people. They weren't dealt with as people. They were dealt with as part of the factory, really. And so we, we start to see this bureaucratic, hierarchical organization. And what Taylor brought to this environment was, um, you know, really doing efficiency studies. So efficiency studies were the old efficiency expert, stopwatch, that's Taylor. They would do time and motion studies to determine the most efficient way to you know, produce a, a part or make a widget. And um, most employees at the time, he really said, we should pay these people for their production. So this is where we get piecework from. You get paid per, you know, widget you produce, or you get paid per task that you complete. And, and so in this period, Taylor published his book, The Principles of Scientific Management, which lent its name to the movement, Scientific Management, in 1911. He would go around to all these different uh, plants in the United States and make them more efficient, more profitable, by really trying to you know, maximize the efficiencies of, of employees. At this time, employees weren't really seen as you know, people, per se, but just as a cog in the big machine that was the factory. Obviously, at this time, safety was not a real consideration. Uh, employers had uh, no responsibility towards employees for injuries or, or, or looking after them if they developed any kind of a disability as a result of their work. If they didn't show up for work, they weren't paid, uh, and they were replaced by, by someone else because a lot of the work was not uh, highly skilled. Right. If, if memory serves, Taylorism took root prior to even the first workers' compensation laws. So these actions um, and theories were really directed at, as you suggest, productivity. Safety was not really in the equation at this particular time. And, and Taylorism, or scientific management, it was sort of the behaviorism of its day. I mean, Taylor was was moving with it with his teams around the U.S. industrial heartland and saying this is the new way that this is what's going to work, and um, it didn't work in in all instances. But um, scientific management really, at the end of the day, was about an inflexible control of the workplace and, and really having employees do specific tasks rather than thinking for themselves or making choices. They were told exactly what to do and the overseer would make sure they did exactly the job they were hired to do. All right. So there's others in this line. Um, I think there's a reasonable knowledge regarding the likes of Maslow and uh, McGregor with X and Y theory. Let's jump into beyond compliance as a broader, because there was then um, uh, an evolution in terms of uh, thinking as you moved further through the decades. And uh, Ferry, for example, and uh, uh, some others uh, had some influence as time rolled on. Yeah, I mean, in North America in particular, uh, most of what we do is driven by there is a law or a regulation that says you must do a certain thing, and it tends to be quite prescriptive in that it tells you what it is you're required to do, and if you do those things, you can certainly become uh, compliant with the law. And 
the, the problem with compliance is you can think you're in compliance and maybe you actually are in compliance, but there's no way to be really sure. And this is what we call the uh, the compliance trap. You think you're in compliance. The regulator shows up and they say, "Well, we don't think you're in compliance." And and so there's this gray area in there. So uh, you can get caught out uh, being not in compliance. And sure. so companies started to progress into the. I mean, we're jumping way ahead here into the 1980s. Are, are talking about well, we go beyond simple compliance. We want to do things that are beyond compliance. We want to be safer than just safe because compliance and safe were kind of equated into the same thing. And so when we see this movement in the 1980s to try and and push beyond compliance, this is built on years and years of motivation and engagement with workforces. You know, and, and, and really the watershed event for engagement was World War II. Uh, World War II, instead of like in World War One, where they just tell everybody to storm over the top and run across no man's land, in, in World War II, soldiers were expected to think for themselves, and they found that was much more successful mm-hmm. than simply, you know, telling people to do things and make sure they do what they're told. From a Canadian perspective, I mean, we can trace the roots of that back to uh, World War One and Vimy Ridge. The Canadians were successful at Vimy Ridge because. They did something that no one else did. They told everyone what the plan was. They told everyone what their part in the plan was and how it related to others' tasks. And so people understood the bigger picture and were encouraged to think for themselves. And as we move forward past some of the more simplistic theories, you know, Maslow or or even McGregor, in the late 1960s, Herzberg comes out with his motivation and hygiene factors and says there's certain things that motivate people and certain things that people expect. They expect to be paid. They expect comfortable working conditions. But yep. if you want to motivate people, that's about giving them the opportunity to achieve, giving them recognition, right. giving them responsibilities. And one of the most interesting things that Herzberg commented on was one of the ways you can motivate people is by removing controls. You, you can retain accountability, but giving more of a free reign approach to the workers so that the the supervisor or the manager is, is really providing the resources and the encouragement rather than the direction and, and, and clear, you know, do this and, and nothing else. And we saw, started to see these management theories from Bass coming out and saying, well, you know, a free reign management approach is probably going to be very successful with a properly trained team and a properly resourced team. So when we we see this beyond compliance movement, that's really springing from that and saying, if we move beyond compliance, we can be sure or more sure that we're in compliance. And and that in, in the long run is going to prove to be less risky and less costly. In the United States, of course, they started their uh, VPP, Voluntary Protection Program, which showed that the sites had moved beyond compliance, had met some some new standards. And we saw those companies were safer by measure of of injury statistics, but uh, also tended to be more successful in terms of business performance. Right. I I think it. um, when you talk about VPP uh, alone, Um, When you look at some of the um, guiding principles of VPP is that there has to be defined engagement 
with the workforce. And um, in the case of unionized workforces, there has to be um, a representation of, of the bargaining unit in the decision-making and the planning for a VPP site. So um, those things are really critical. And um, when you talk about Herzberg and the elements that you had just mentioned, it shouldn't go unremarked that many of the things that he was talking about in the 60s are now echoing here in 2019 under the guise of safety differently or safety too. Um, there's a lot of very similar elements. Um, they're just separated by 40 years or so. Yeah, I, I mean, I think safety differently, uh, safety too. These are just new terms to describe concepts that actually have been around for a long time. And, and, and it's really important to, to see the the evolution from scientific management where an employee isn't really considered a person to spring forward into the, the 60s and the 70s. And now we're saying we want to hear from employees. We want to engage them. We want them to have a voice and, and we want them to really be uh, involved in the decision-making processes because those decisions affect them and it's in their best interest to make sure that those are the correct decisions and we're doing the things that are effective for them. Right. So let's jump then into behaviorism. It came around in, in the 1980s. Uh, this first started coming up and, and behaviorism came about uh, almost, um, you know, again, if we, if we turn back the clock in the early 20th century, the Pittsburgh survey uh, was a, uh, just a, a huge survey done in the city of Pittsburgh. And they looked at all these factors and because in, in making steel in Pittsburgh, there was a lot of injuries and fatalities. And uh, at that time, we see that, uh, and there are some direct quotes in the report of, of, of managers saying, well, you know, 95% of all these fatalities and injuries, that's, these workers are, are really the architects of their own misfortune. They made a mistake. It's not our fault. And that was later echoed by um, Heinrich, who, you know, said 88% of all incidents are, are because of, a, you know, an error that an employee makes or due to, you know, worker errors. Right. I mean, that's a very simplistic view to take of things. But, it, you know, if we move forward to the 1980s and we see companies trying to move beyond compliance and, and so they're asking the question, well, what do we do? I mean, we, we know what a safety program looks like. And at that time, you know, management systems were sort of around, but nobody was really applying management system methodologies to safety programs. So at the time, Heinrich's uh, theory was uh, still somewhat popular, and so I said, "Well, eighty-eight percent of all these incidents are due to the, you know, the unsafe behavior of workers, unsafe acts." That kind of got rounded up to ninety percent because that sounds better, I suppose. And <laughs> yeah. so, um, in terms of uh, you know psychology, behaviorism is a, is a branch of psychology, and there's many branches uh, where it basically proposes that you can condition the behavior of people based on some experiments done by Skinner, um, oh, oh boy, uh, early in the 20th century. These theories have never really been proven, but there is a, a certainly a well-recognized uh, branch of psychology for behaviorism. And, and so uh, some people came out with an interesting idea. They said, well, if we can look at what people are doing and observe their behavior in the workplace and then monitor them to, to see if there's a potential of them doing unsafe acts. We can intervene. And, and by, by intervening and providing positive feedback, we can then change the behavior of the workers in the workplace so they will avoid making these, you know, uh, doing these unsafe acts or making these errors. 
Um, it was an idea that really sort of caught on, and I, and I must admit, uh, you know, full disclosure, uh, there was a time when I thought that that probably would work. But um, as years went on and, and I became, I guess, more experienced, I realized that you can't change someone's DNA by talking to them. So uh, behavior-based safety came upon us, and uh, even if you have a wonderful uh, theory, uh, the execution is always the problem, and 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 even the proponents of BBS will admit that even you know the best plan, if it's implemented by people who don't understand it or or don't have the skill set, it's going to go horribly wrong, and that's really I mean what we've seen, especially over the past ten years, is behavior-based safety going horribly wrong. Roots of tremendous amount of money, a tremendous amount of time and effort has been spent on behaviorism, but. When I get into conversations with people about this, I, I, I really point out one earth-shattering fact. Behaviorism and behavior-based safety is the most popular in the construction industry. Uh, since the 1980s, the fatality rate in the construction industry in North America has gone up, not down. So if behavior-based safety actually worked, it would have gone down. That's a great stat. It's interesting to look at uh, you know the outcomes versus some of the inputs, which would be, you know, all the all the observations. There's a couple of things over the years that I would concur with, Dave, is um, one is, uh, I think, the way behavior-based safety was packaged. It certainly was presented in some quarters as the, the silver bullet, just do this and that'll get you the 5 or 10% better performance and uh, everybody will be happy with that. That would be a significant leap forward. Again, using lagging metrics as uh, barometers of success. So there's those elements. There's uh, distraction from companies really doing the fundamental elements well in terms of particularly management and supervisory training. I'd look with some chagrin at the amount of money being poured into BBS programs and uh, wish that that money could be better directed towards management and supervisory training on the fundamentals of safety systems. I think that there ultimately would have been far better bang for the buck in those areas, uh, looking back at it. And there was also some flow-through effects organizationally where because you had essentially a peer-to-peer -peer observation program running in the field, it would typically need to come with some attachment of no discipline. So, you know, you could observe and you wouldn't write anyone's name down, um, except in cases of, say, imminent danger. There's a real reluctance, and it's ironic, actually, that you've mentioned, and I was unaware of that fact, by the way, that the construction industry was the largest embracer of behavior-based safety, because when you look at the transient nature of construction projects, they're typically short-term nature. This would tell you that probably construction is one of the most difficult milieus to install and expect to have long-term success with behavior-based safety. You would, uh, at least for my money, I would expect more static workplaces, manufacturing facilities, um, long-term maintenance operations of a particular facility. The conditions would be far more favorable for long-term success with behavior-based safety than the construction industry. So just some observations based on uh, your comments there. Yeah, and, and I don't want to be entirely negative about behavior-based safety because one of the great values that I see in 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 a behavioral observation program is that uh, you know it's a great coaching opportunity, uh, not for safety people, but for supervisors and and managers to observe employees doing their work, and 99% of the time tell them you're doing exactly what we expect, you're doing a good job, and give them some positive feedback. 
But uh, one of my students actually put this very well recently. They said, you know, we, we learned in this course that incidents are not simple. We learned that they have underlying causes and that safety systems have to have a bunch of elements working together in order to be effective. So I don't understand how talking to someone about their behavior can really have any effect. <laughs> yeah. You know, it, it, it was a powerful idea and, and it came along at the right time. And I think that I, I know people, me included, jumped and said, hey, this could be a good thing. This this could work. Um, but, you know, I'm, I'm sorry to say that it, it, it actually doesn't work. And, and some of the proponents of BBS have, you know, in, in recent years admitted that, you know, it hasn't been successful and that what they envisioned um, really hasn't come to pass. Yeah, I think it's refreshing to see that some of the major proponents have, with years removed from the, the initial sort of energy and excitement around BBS, have been um, you know more guarded in what they they view that the the real positives have been. Others actually proponents have doubled down and said, well, you know, these problems really are just matter matters of improper implementation and follow through and lack of training. Um, so some of the proponents have really just doubled down that nobody really understood it as well as they did. The other thing that uh, I would mention regarding BBS is that any mechanism that promotes discussion and builds awareness has merit. But where I saw a real break off with BBS was really in the collection of data. I wasn't really sure what these programs intended to be. So if they were really just as a mechanism to prompt interaction between peers and supervisors, I see a ton of merit in that. I think that is all really positive. Yet every one of these programs was also appended with some sort of record keeping and, and data collection. And this is where, and you look at our world today, where frankly, big data is everything. It's all around us. It's not just in the safety business. It's in in every business. Um, every part of our economy is driven by big data these days. So my sense is that there's really just so little in the way of mechanism to collect meaningful data because literally every job site I ever went to where there was a behavior-based program up and running there was bankers boxes full of cards or forms, none of which were being um, input in a way where data could be compiled and trends identified and, and uh, the data crunched and presented in a format or reported out in a way that any real conclusions could be drawn. Um, and presumably from those conclusions, if it's solid data and solid methodology, that there could be management decisions made regarding how to improve the workplace. So I, from the beginning, was somewhat confused as to, you know, what is the end game for all of this, this effort and all this interaction? Is it really just a subjective thing that you feel better about the amount of communication and, and so on taking place? Um, at, at job locations, or is this a big data thing? What's to be achieved with this? Well, you make a very good point. <laughs> if you're doing these behavioral observations, um, there is value there. And, you know, you, you can set upper and lower control limits and say, well, we're seeing, let's say, 98.5% of the time, it's just positive reinforcement. So 1.5% of the time, we're, we're going to have to provide some direction or some coaching. And so you can say, well, if that varies by more than a half a percent, we better find out why, because something has changed. 
Um, a, a friend of mine uh, worked at a, a large construction company. Told me one day we, we did 1.5 million behavior observations uh, last year, and I said that's amazing. How many of those involve some coaching or corrective action? He said, Well, we don't track that because our client just requires us to do so many a, a week. Uh, so there's a lost opportunity to to collect some meaningful data that could be a leading indicator. And then there's the very real tendency, and this is just how humans are. And and for organizations, the few that did track both corrective coaching and positive reinforcement, that the willingness of a worker to engage in positive reinforcement is uh, 10 or 15 or 20 fold the number of workers that are prepared to give corrective coaching. Um, it's, it's easy to give positive strokes and say, hey, look, that looks great, my friend. Uh, things are going well here. Uh, keep up the good work, as opposed to stopping a worker and, and talking about what really is compliance issues. You know, this doesn't look to be on spec and uh, and we have a conversation. So while there is a bunch of practical uh, training and and things were done, DuPont Stop, for example, was uh, perhaps the progenitor of of many of the uh, behavior-based safety things where um, it provided a mechanism to have um, an interaction in the field um, at the work face. Uh, Frankly, most people just didn't really particularly in a a peer-to-peer relationship, want to talk much about non-compliance. So let's move on from uh, behaviorism and let's talk, um, because on the heels of behaviorism came the culture of zero, and um, there's a great deal to unpack in this particular area as well. Oh, certainly. I I think we, we initially see the the culture of zero, this is starting to develop in the 1990s. And, and here is another concept that really sounds great. It's the moral high ground. And so we're saying, well, we believe that all incidents can be prevented. And, and that's sort of a true statement. And, and I would say sort of a true statement because in order to get to zero and stay there, you have to apply infinite resources. Because if you have zero on one side, you have infinity on the other. So when you talk to employees and say, you know, we have zero tolerance for unsafe acts, we have zero injuries, we want to have, you know, zero harm. These these sound like great terms, but the problem with that is that it's extremist and intolerant. And in the end, employees say, well, okay. It's January. We, we have a zero injury goal. We just had an injury, so what do we do for the rest of the year? Uh, if you give people uh, an unrealistic goal, uh, something curious happens. If people realize that your target is, let's say, zero, and you haven't articulated a plan to get to zero, and you haven't articulated a plan to stay at zero, and there are no initiatives around that really are substantive, then employees come to realize that this is not achievable. This drives disengagement in safety and actually leads to employees taking more risks rather than working safer, despite this having a goal of zero. And this whole culture of of, of zero uh, and zero harm, it sounds great. I mean, it, you know, who wants to be the first to get injured? Who wants to be the first to experience, you know, an incident? Well, of course, no one does. Right. 
And and so, you know, this is certainly appeals to the, you know, social license side, you know, the corporate social responsibility. And I think that saying we have a, our, our goal is not to have incidents. Our, our goal is, is not to harm people. Our goal is not to harm in the environment. That's great. But when you start saying that you have a, a zero goal, this really leads you logically really down the road to a zero tolerance kind of mindset. We cannot tolerate unsafe acts because if you believe that unsafe acts cause incidents, if you were one of those companies that embraced the behaviorism and you say, well, if we have unsafe acts, we can't, we can't tolerate that. So now you're declaring war on human nature. Everyone makes mistakes, whether they like to admit it or not. And should someone be punished for making a mistake? Uh, health and safety is all about having a system in place so that when someone makes a mistake, the consequences are mitigated as much as possible. It's not about having zero tolerance for mistakes, but that is, I call the cult of zero. Right. I mean, I, I think if management comes forward with ideas around zero incident campaigns, it tends to drive what I would call an estrangement between management and the field from the point of view that the field worker knows, as management well knows, as everybody uh, in an organization would know, is that there is no human endeavor that's been perfected. You know, so speaking in these absolutes uh, tends to drive um, uh, an amount of rolling of the eyes and shrugging at the field level because the, the, the people that actually are um, on the tools and, and dealing with significant risk day in, day out, really just perceive this as stuff. I guess they say, well, management needs to say these things and they need to demonstrate leadership. And in this particular era, um, these are the kinds of things that they're saying, but not much of, in a practical sense, in terms of improvement, whether it be systems improvement, uh, technology. Zero is really focused on the the worker, the employee. It, it's, not, it's not about a safe workplace or reducing risk. It's not about what problems might lie within the system itself. It's about what's going on with the workers. Uh, and, and that focus on the workers really is kind of a byproduct of behaviorism because the entire focus there was on the worker instead of looking at the you know the big picture and and we we look at you know high reliability organizations or human factors there is even there there's two schools where one one says well you know we have to move the worker out of the danger and automate or or we have to recognize that the workplace is inherently complex and we cannot control everything in the workplace right so What's a practical way to have organizations step away from this dialogue regarding zero? In lieu of zero incident campaigns, what are practical things for organizations to phrase and you know the, the kinds of things that they should be, in your mind, talking about instead? Well, I, I don't think that organizations need to necessarily step away from the concept. I think they need to stop using zero. I think they should say, we don't believe that incidents are acceptable. We don't believe that people should be injured at work. We don't believe that we should harm the environment. Those are much more reasonable statements than we, you know, we're going to have zero incidents. Mm -hmm. When you say things like we're going to have zero incidents, that's what the company says. And that sounds morally superior. But what, what the people who work there hear is, 
we don't want you to report any incidents. And anyone that has an incident is going to incur our displeasure because we've already said we're not going to have any. So using this extreme and absolute language really walls off any kind of really constructive discourse or interaction with employees. We, we see surveys coming out from Gallup even saying that a large percentage of employees are disengaged from their employer because they don't have any kind of real input into what happens in the workplace or what happens to them. So companies should really try and avoid saying we, we want to have zero because if anything happens, you failed. And employees recognize that's a failure. And, and, and so this, this extreme language simply becomes a platitude that implies that the company really does not care about health and safety. Right. And, and through the, the concept of zero was the stones were laid on the path towards the, the concept of hypercompliance. Yeah, hypercompliance is a curious, curious phenomenon. And, and, and frankly, I, I sort of became aware of, of what I call hypercompliance. Um, oh, it would be over 10 years ago now. Uh, and, I, and I started thinking about it. Uh, I wanted to write an article, but I, I recognized that there's a, a, a large psychological component here. And so I, I reached out to uh, Dr. Judy Erickson in the States and, and, and uh, just, you know, to try and get some background. And, and, sh and she, she suggested that we, uh, we co-write this article. Mm -hmm. And so, so that's how the article came to be. But at the time, um, I was working in the in Canadian oil sands and uh, these absolute rules or cardinal rules started to, to show up. And this was an initiative by oil companies saying, look, um, we recognize that there are certain areas that are inherently more risky than others, and we need to concentrate on those areas. And that sounded good. That sounded fine. But then we would see that there was this belief, first of all, that employee or worker behavior and in terms of errors was the major cause of incidents. Mm -hmm. It was really based in that. And Managers, especially senior managers, were very frustrated. They said, look, we are spending millions of dollars a year on safety. We've done the behavior-based safety thing. We've got all these rules in place. We're giving all this training. And when an incident happened, uh, invariably the cause was that the employee wasn't following a procedure. And, and invariably the solution was to retrain them because they needed to fully understand this procedure. So... Uh, this seemed to be a bit of a merry-go-round, and, and, and senior managers are getting very, very, you know, frustrated. Mm -hmm. And uh, if you have children, you can understand that. If, you're, if your child, for instance, says, I won't eat their dinner, you, can, you, you automatically say, well, there has to be a penalty associated with that, no dessert for you. Um, and, and if they still won't eat their dinner, you know, well, you're going to have to go to bed right away, because, and you're going to keep ramping up the penalty until you get compliance. Mm -hmm. And, and so there's, there's that mindset, but also there's the mindset of twice as much of something is obviously twice as good. And so we started to see in these rules, if the height for fall protection was six feet, we'll reduce it to three feet because that's twice as safe. Now, I mean, that's a real example, but anybody that knows anything about fall protection knows that the height is set at uh, six or, or, or feet or higher because that's how far it takes 
for a fall arrest system to deploy and arrest the fall. Yep. So reducing it to three feet just means that the fall arrest system isn't going to work. But that's seen as being more safe. Goggles are safer than safety glasses. Um, it was all these things that came in. Now, now these rules and, and their focus were on areas that like fall protection, which were areas that would generate a lot of the incidents. So there's a mixture there of this cult of zero, the frustration, and, and the belief that if we just make these rules crystal clear and we start ramping up the penalty, we'll get compliance. And I say compliance because this has nothing to do with risk. So if you tell everyone you must use the required PPE, that's a rule. The penalty for breaking this rule is you will be terminated from your job. And of course, because these are absolute rules, you cut out the middleman, really. The supervisor, the manager, they have no latitude there. They have to follow those rules. So um, I can give you some, some wonderful examples of, of this in action. Uh, shortly after these uh, absolute rules came out, major oil company, big site, one of their senior managers was tagged by security for not stopping in a stop sign. It was five o'clock in the morning. There was no traffic to be seen anywhere. So the risk here was zero. You know, the risk of a, of a traffic or a motor vehicle accident was zero. Uh, that person was terminated from their job, 35 years of experience. That employee, obviously, very valuable employee. What message does that send? Well, the message the company thinks it's sending is, we have zero tolerance for unsafe act. This is a safe workplace. Or the message that is received by workers is, we don't value you at all. And uh, if you break these rules, we will fire you. That's not a very comfortable place to work. And oh, by the way, we really want you to speak to us about safety problems. <laughs> <laughs> uh, and, and don't forget to put in your near miss reports. Um, so, right, a completely it, dichotomous message there. But it's interesting in that we think that by making a very clear rule and making it crystal clear what the penalty is, we will get compliance. And of course, that's why we don't have murders anymore, because you go to jail for life for that, right? right. Um, it, it is a flawed concept. And yet, all these major oil producers came out with these rules, and, and it spread through the, the, their service providers now. And, and from a labor relations standpoint, I mean, people have taken companies to task on this and said, well, somebody lost their job, there was no risk, come on. In, in those cases, the employers are prevailing because they've clearly stated the rule, they provided training on that rule, and they've clearly stated what the penalty is, uh, which is, is a bit of a tragedy, of course, because you have rules and the people enforcing those rules, of course, don't make mistakes, I suppose, but uh, even small errors are being severely punished. And does that make the workplace safer? I mean, that that's really the question there, isn't it? I mean, if you make these rules very, very clear and you make sure everybody understands them and, and you make sure everyone understands the, the penalty, shouldn't that make the, the workplace safer? Shouldn't that focus the thoughts of people on working safely? Right. Uh, sounds good. It sounds like it ought to work. It really does. Uh, unfortunately, people do make errors and those errors are not intentional. So when people make unintentional errors, should they be severely punished for that? 
And if they are severely punished for that, what, what are the results? <laughs> I mean, you see cases where um, even if discipline is not the going in prospect when a significant incident occurs. And um, unfortunately, at least in my experience, much of this is driven by the specter of recordability uh, that will drive up a, a, a bar chart or a line chart on some manager's report somewhere. And in the event that uh, the incident could be recordable, the injured party will find all of a sudden he's got a great deal more managerial friends that are intensely interested uh, as to whether he's returning to work, uh, the nature of the treatment and, and that kind of thing. The senior managers that participate certainly perceive this as part of their duty to uh, demonstrate leadership and care about uh, ad advancing these issues related to, to workplace safety and uh, to make sure that uh, the process is uh, followed in terms of investigation and that kind of thing. And it gets down to root causes and, and on it goes. Having said all that, I would offer the, the thought that for incidents of high severity and, and uh, high potential, a lot of these cases, when you look at the strength of the line management groups, if uh, frontline leaders and secondline leaders are not capable of investigating these incidents and determining causes to the satisfaction of the, the, the first layer of management, then we, and I mean we collectively, the clients, um, the labor organizations, um, everybody who's a stakeholder, then we collectively have not done a good job in providing the full set of tools to those first and second line supervisors. Um, it should not require a VP to come down and provide sufficient oomph to a given investigation if really the intent is to do nothing more than find out what happened, determine the causes, and come up with realistic recommendations to prevent recurrence. Well, that's entirely correct. Uh, the problem with, with having absolute rules is the focus of the investigation is often, was the rule broken? And if the answer is yes, then the, you know the punishment is, is, is automatic. So even there, you're losing the opportunity to understand why the rule was broken and to, to really look at the, at the causes. Senior management sometimes can be involved in those things to, to push things ahead and show that they are you know, involved. But we all rely and every company relies on, on supervisors and managers exercising their judgment, exercising their discretion. And, and really trying to keep the workplace safe. Yeah. And by having these absolute rules, you absolutely remove that from the equation. So not only are you alienating and, and, and damaging the communication with employees, but also with the supervisors and managers, because they, they have these things taken out, ASX machina, someone's going to reach down and take that right out of their hands and say, you know, I don't care what factors there are, I don't care what you have to say, this person must be disciplined. Well, instinctively, it's easy to trace the, the logic through. I mean, I think that the uh, major employers have done a great job identifying that these are the sources of uh, fatality and major injury on their 
facilities are within their operations. So um, having emphasis on these things and identifying them as here's the most likely way you're going to get seriously banged up or killed, uh, there's a ton of merit in that. Um, As always, the devil's in the details and um, taking these things to the nth degree in terms of saying, hey, look, no tolerance breeds the kinds of things that you're talking about. So is there examples that you're aware of where organizations have uh, identified the downside of the hyper-compliance and the, the culture of zero phenomenon and are, are moving beyond these, these aspects and, and looking at perhaps more humanistic ways or broader ways of still keeping these things at the top of the list that they need to effectively manage, obviously, because there's significant risk with these, these kinds of activities, confined space entry, work above grade, as you had mentioned, isolation of energy. A lot of people are being uh, smashed between things, um, in, at least in this particular province in Alberta, when you look at um, industrial fatalities, there's a lot of people uh, caught between or caught on things, it seems, these days. So what about the organizations that are are moving beyond? Do you see indicators of that? I, I do. Those organizations struggle with the reality of their primary clients are the ones that are driving these absolute rules, and then they're trying to really have sort of a just culture approach in, in their workplace. And one of the things the rules does do is it, it, it gives some focus and, and says, you know, these are the high risk activities. And, and every company, you know, this is the, the going back to basics. Every company should understand the risk associated with their business and know what the high risk activities are. And the reason for that, is obviously, is so that that is where you can concentrate your efforts. And, and I, I tend to term that sort of thing as, as, as intelligent safety. Um, uh, one company I, I, I worked for, I did a, a bit of an experiment and I've done it several times since, but uh, we looked at what are the high risk activities. And there was about a dozen. And uh, we developed a specific sort of, I guess, mini audit to look at, are these activities being done correctly? Are these activities being done safely? Because uh, correctly and safely aren't always the same thing. That's right. And so in looking at that, the surprising thing was, and, and even in you know a, a company that I would term a good company, a safe company, those critical tasks were being done correctly and safely. 75% of the time. That should make anybody sit up and, and take notice. But but instead, we see, instead of looking at, is this going to blow up? Is someone going to fall? Is someone not going to be rescued from a confined space? We're talking about slips, trips, and falls. Talking about whether or not somebody has you know put their safety glasses on at the appropriate moment. Because hyper-compliance is all about compliance, not about risk. And, and, and it really turns the eye away from risk. So we, we have to recognize that rules are important. Structure in the workplace, clearly laid out procedures and roles and accountabilities are incredibly important. But there's a balance there. There's a balance where you have to have the right amount of direction and the right amount of support and latitude. If there isn't that balance there and and you have too many rules or the rules are are far too restrictive, we see, and I'll go back to uh, Herzberg, 1968, you've got to relax the rules. You've got to let people make decisions and take ownership because that's what motivates people. That's what gets their attention. And that's what makes them safe workers. 
So if you introduce all these rules and all these restrictive covenants, you really are taking that away from and destroying the engagement that you need to have a safe workforce. So hyper-compliance is completely understandable in that we are frustrated because we're having incidents that seem to have the same cause, which is employees failing to observe a rule or failing to observe a procedure. But the problem isn't that the employee doesn't understand the rule. The problem may be that the, the rule itself or the procedure itself is too difficult to comply with. And in a forward-thinking company, in a company that has a, a system mindset, the assumption would be if the employee failed to follow a procedure or a rule, we need to understand what the problem is with that procedure or rule, that the employee could not follow it. Uh, because employees, 99.9% .9 of the time, don't willfully ignore rules or procedures. So we need to understand what's the problem with the system or the rule. But of course, in, in, in the, the world of hyper-compliance or the culture of zero, uh, the focus is on the worker. We obviously the worker didn't understand the rule, so we're going to make them repeat the same training that was ineffective in the first place to make sure they understand the rule, even though we don't understand why they didn't. There's a couple of observations I would have here. One of them sort of harkens back to the behavior based safety days when everything, as you suggest, was uh, worker focused. Yet there's all kinds of supervisory and management inputs to safety systems that can, in fact, be measured, perhaps not through observation, more through through documentation, but nonetheless. So I'll give you an example that uh, a large project I had worked on, we had a requirement that uh, that, that project was scheduled with a, a three-week look-ahead schedule. So foreman and general foreman had a, a three-week look-ahead schedule that would tell them uh, the big work packages, the, the work packages that were coming uh, down the line. And um, there was a standard that said uh, that um, it was the responsibility of the general foreman, if I recall correctly, to look at their schedule and identify any scopes of work that would require the creation of a job safety analysis. And of course, there was criteria it would be um, unused, something that was uh, unusual, something that never done before, anything that involved a new work process or a new piece of equipment, uh, that kind of thing. And that became an auditable thing. So this was um, a behavior that we could manage and we could measure and feed back compliance. Because if we believe that creation of JSAs that in, ideally would include the workers performing uh, the work and all the elements that you would typically want in terms of participation and, and oversight and all those kinds of things. Um, so this was an area that uh, we just thought was really very valuable and, and put the focus on the person who had the most ability to affect and uh, and carry out this really critical piece of work because left to their own devices, the worker is not going to create a, a job safety analysis in isolation. <laughs> They're going to go off and do a task. And frankly, no one ever asked them to create job safety analysis on their own. This was something um, that was typically led by a frontline leader or perhaps a, in this case, a general foreman. So just an example there. Other examples might be where the hyper-compliance thing is really important as it relates to the safety absolutes, is the impact that big data could have on, on these areas. So you talked about 75% um, compliance, but there's few organizations that I'm familiar with that go out and systematically uh, measure compliance to their safety absolutes, because um, if they did, those organizations, uh, there's probably 
relatively um, small number of organizations that do, they would then start to get an idea whether 75% compliance is a level of compliance that means year over year, no serious incidents occur. Because point being that we live in this 100% world. And the fact is, is that you might have a, a work site where you have fall arrest risks and there's people working above grade and complying at a 75% level with your fall arrest standards. And on a year over year basis, no one ever have falls and has a serious incident, let alone a fatality. So that means that management expectations should be calibrated, obviously, to um, be better than 75%, but 75% might be a level of compliance that is uh, perfectly acceptable. Yeah, I, th I think in dealing with hyper-compliance, uh, there's a couple of really important concepts that come into play. And the term I've, I've always used is drift, and, and that was really well explained by Rasmussen. And, and really, when you train somebody in a task, it doesn't matter what the task is. You're at 100% right there. But from that moment on, things start to drift. Mm -hmm. And so people being naturally innovative, uh, look for quicker, better, and easier ways to do things. And so you start to see some drift away from, you know, the work as being done versus the work as imagined by, you know, someone in the head office, let's say. Mm -hmm. Usually the first indication you have of there's there's a problem and that you've drifted too far from the standard that's expected is there's an incident and almost no companies i'm aware of have any method whatsoever to detect drift using what i call intelligent safety you say we have a system we have a program we have a process great we've trained people on it but do we know that that's working our our main focus should be is that working? We need to be out there and, and safety people and managers need to be out there and say, is this working? If people are not following the procedure or the rule, then we need to understand what the problem is that makes it difficult for them to comply. Mm -hmm. Because rules, you know, cannot be absolute. Uh, the damage that's being done by hyper-compliance is real. Uh, companies call these, these things a black swan. We've had this terrible incident and we don't understand why. Um, it's because employees aren't, and, and here's another important concept, they're not mindful. And mindfulness is related to high reliability organizations. That really means that employees are mindful of their surroundings, mindful of their workplace, but they are solving problems and addressing hazards as they go. And in order to get that mindfulness, you have to have engaged employees. And hyper-compliance is a great way to get disengaged employees. It's a great way to destroy engagement and motivation. So by smothering people with rules and taking away the discretion by having automatic punishment, you're really destroying that engagement. And you're really pushing things back to Taylorism and, and saying, we don't care what employees think or do. You do X, you get Y. That's all we know. That's all we care about. And then we can show then that we are you know, not tolerating unsafe acts or unsafe behaviors. And, and while that may be true, that doesn't make your workplace safer. Mm -hmm. So are, are hyper-compliant organizations safer? Well, absolutely not. Uh, I mean, there's lots and lots of evidence that, uh, you know, this is just not working. If uh, you, you go back to the uh, oil companies that originally came out with these these absolute rules, They've been tweaked over the years, and I think they're down to eight now. I could be wrong. It might be still be 10. 
Um, you know, employees call that the 10 ways to get fired. But we have not seen an improvement in, in safety. And, and, and when I measure safety, you know, unfortunately, I would measure fatalities because it's hard to classify a fatality as anything but that. We've become quite uh, good at managing claims and managing cases. And as you pointed out earlier, a great deal of effort goes into uh, making sure an incident is not a recordable incident after the fact. And there's several studies out that have shown that there's actually no connection at all anymore between you know, fatalities and injuries because of that. Uh, that's been the case for, for a long time. So this, this whole uh, pyramid thing, uh, you know, that uh, people talk about is, is absolutely 100% false. There is no relationship there at all. I mean, you, you can only correctly say that there's more first aids than there are medical aids and there's, and there's more medical aids than there are lost times. That would be a correct statement. But to say that there's a, a, a relationship there within an industry is not, um, you know, you can say within a company, you can establish some kind of a ratio that could help you have some kind of leading indicators. But, uh, you know, fatalities uh, tell the tale. And, and fatalities have been pretty much flat since the early 1990s in terms of a rate uh, across uh, several countries uh, because we see that uh, we, we've kind of hit a plateau. And, and, and of course, you know, we, we're trying different things. We have to try to evolve. But hypercompliance is really an evolutionary branch that, you know, is, should not be pursued. Just as we saw behavior-based safety, that was an evolutionary branch that, you know, we, we went down, but uh, it's a dead end as well. So where does the future take us then for organizations that uh, are progressive? They, many of these organizations tend to have budget to, to look at these things. They send their people uh, literally across the planet, uh, attending various organizations and get-togethers to glean uh, best practices and perhaps um, talk about some of the things that they're doing at their particular facilities. Where do you see if this if this branch of, of sort of safety evolution is closing off and perhaps gratefully so, or at least resettles to a more practical approach to uh, managing higher risk things with a, a more um, a more practical approach? Where do you see some of the next steps? Well, I think uh, we're, we're seeing some of that now in that uh, what, what was old is new again. Um, organizations need to really start more uh, shifting their focus towards risk. I, I have always said that health and safety is about identifying and mitigating risk. It's not about promoting compliance. In North America, compliance is, is kind of the watchword of, of health and safety not so in other parts of the world and and we see in europe much lower fatality rates because they are much more risk focused there is a movement uh, even the national energy board here in canada has required pipeline companies to identify their risks and uh, and put in place risk mitigation plans and uh, they have to submit that to the national energy board signed off by uh you know a responsible executive which would be somebody in the C-suite. Right. So there, there is a bit of a move towards more risk-based discussions. Uh, risk has been around for a long time. And you know when we see these things like uh, human factors, that's just a term for something that's been around for a long time. And it just hasn't been really mainstream when we recognize that workplaces are inherently complex. We are placing people in a complex environment that they do not control. 
the great trade-off in health and safety is the employer is absolutely and fully accountable for the safety of the workplace and everyone in it. And in return, they get to make rules and govern the workplace and select employees and discipline employees. That's what they get. But they also have to accept that accountability. So, you know, to, to move the focus away from the worker who makes a mistake and, and look deeper into the organization and see what has enabled that mistake. So high reliability organizations, uh, at least, you know, the, the definition promoted by the folks at Lund University, I, I think is, is, uh, is, is the way we're going to see things going. And also back to the work of uh, Week and Sutcliffe and high reliability organizations and, and recognizing that the, the goal isn't safety or whatever you think safety is. The goal is to have mindful and engaged employees. That gives you a safe workplace because, as you pointed out, to be doing things 75% right and never have an incident just out of luck. But, you know, you need to make sure that you are doing things right. And we see all these studies for, from tightly coupled uh, industries like airlines, you know, and uh, the nuclear industry, mm -hmm. where if there's an error, you see the effects right away. But in loosely coupled sort of environments like construction sites, uh, it's, it's a lot harder to work that out. And the, the best protection and the, the best way we can ensure safe workplaces is to make sure that our system is working not just training people and sending them out and assuming that everything's going okay until there's an incident. And, and that really is going to require an evolution of the role of the safety professional and, 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 and some evolutionary thinking and some risk-taking from business right. to stop looking at injury rates and start looking at how well their safety system is functioning. So I, I think that there's, um, when you look at uh, sort of the whole auditing aspect um, and knowing what's taking place in the field, this traditionally is um, uh, field compliance. And, and I, I think that's where you need to start, but you need to not only measure whether a program has been established and whether it's been rolled out and communicated, um, but to understand, at least going in, um, what the level of compliance is um, and at, at fully aware of, of um, our, our previous conversation here regarding hewing too closely to just a compliance line. But you have to start somewhere in terms of, okay, um, understanding just what is the level of compliance and then looking at your big data through the lens of risk. Trying to determine organizationally what things are, are going well, what are people knowledgeable about. So, for example, I'll just give you a real practical example. To me, I see a bit of a, a bust between, um, say, the amount of uh, money that's being spent to train end users of fall arrest equipment versus the amount of money that's being used to train their supervisors to create and implement fall arrest plans. So... There's a lot of money being poured into end user training. So I yeah. think organizations that go out and measure the knowledge level and then the execution of those fall arrest plans and measure the knowledge levels of the supervisors charged with those responsibilities would be moving in the right direction. Yeah, that's a really good example. Um, and, I, and I see that all the time. We train these end users in fall protection. That's great. But someone has to put together the fall protection plan and, and then decide how that's going to be applied. And I, I, I see this all the time when people are wearing 
the wrong harness uh, for the type of work they're doing. They're using a, a lanyard that's completely inappropriate or a rope and a rope grab, and, and it's, it's just not adjusted properly. And supervisors are entirely ignorant of this. And yet, you know, we see in Alberta in particular uh, recent legislative changes that really uh, focus the light on supervisors. And, and I often tell companies, don't hire more safety people. Train your supervisors. Absolutely. That's where you're going to get the bang for your buck. Yep. I couldn't agree more. Dave, this has been a fascinating conversation and uh, very valuable. Um, so thanks very much for uh, for this time. All right. Well, I look forward to it. And um, I always get lots of questions about this topic uh, and have some very interesting conversations. Thank you for listening. If you liked what you heard today or liked other podcasts in this series, please leave a review for us on Google or Apple or wherever you access your podcasts. If you'd like to comment directly or have subject matter that you think would be of interest to the Safety with Purpose community and would like to guest on the show, feel free to email me at pat.robinson at safopedia.com or contact me on Twitter at patrobinson2005.